Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. Slate's Political Gab Fest is sponsored by Volvo. Experience the wonder of summer. Have a month's payment on Volvo and spend your summer doing the things that matter to you. Plus, get up to five years full coverage, including wear and tear. Go to volvocars.com US. And by ZipRecruiter. With ZipRecruiter, you can post your job to over 100 job sites with a single click and an interface that's easy to use. Right now, you can try ZipRecruiter for free by going to ZipRecruiter.com GabFest. That's ZipRecruiter.com GabFest. The following podcast contains explicit language. Welcome to the Slate Political Gab Fest for August 14th, 2015, the Blood Coming Out of Her Wherever edition. I'm Emily Bazelon, a staff writer for The New York Times Magazine. David Plotz and John Dickerson are somewhere else. David is on vacation. I don't actually know where John is. Let us wish them a happy, blessed break. And, in fact, we will not miss them because we have two of my favorite Slate writers, in fact, two of my favorite writers, joining us today. Jamel Bowie is with us in Washington, D.C. Hey, Jamel. Hello. And Amanda Hess is here with me in the New York studio. Hello, Amanda. Hi, guys. On this week's GabFest, we will talk about Megyn Kelly's moment as, I would argue, a feminist hero. And we're going to ask whether Fox has thrown Kelly under the bus to placate Donald Trump. Google, it has transformed itself into something called Alphabet, which is a new holding company, I think. Will Aremus of Slate will join us to explain whether we should care about this and what it means. We'll also discuss Larry Lessig's one-issue potential presidential campaign. Is this a good, decent shot at fixing our broken election system, or is it just kind of quixotic and even counterproductive? Plus, we'll have cocktail chatter, and in Slate Plus, we're going to talk about the Black Lives Movement protests of Bernie Sanders and Jeb Bush events this week. Okay, let's start off with Megyn Kelly. Quickly, the backstory here. She was a forceful questioner at the GOP debate, including of Donald Trump, and she asked him a pointed question about his um, many and varied sexist comments. And he kind of challenged her, tried to laugh it off by making another um, insulting remark about Rosie O'Donnell. And Kelly just kind of kept going. So after the debate, Trump was completely furious. And he said to Don Lemon, another anchor on CNN, this now infamous quote about Kelly during the questioning, you could see there was blood coming out of her eyes, blood coming out of her wherever. This led Eric Erickson, a conservative activist, to take away Trump's invitation to a weaker conference in the name of decency. And then we had this back and forth with Roger Ailes, the president of Fox, in which they had some phone conversation. Ailes said the air had been cleared. Trump wrote a nice tweet about Ailes. Trump showed up on a couple of Fox shows. And it's like as if fences have been mended with Fox. 
Meanwhile, Kelly went on her show and said, I'm not going to respond to Trump. I'm moving forward. And I'm certainly not going to apologize for doing good journalism. So, Amanda, what do you think about all of this? Am I right to call Megyn Kelly a feminist hero or at least like is she having a feminist heroic moment? No. <laughs> I mean, I agree with Willa Paskin, who reviewed her show, I think back in 2013, who said uh, the the confusing thing that happens with Megyn Kelly is that she is smarter and more confident than other people on Fox News. And I think because she's a woman that is confusing to us and we don't know how to respond to it and we think maybe she's more liberal or she's more feminist – but I think what her question really did was something really crafty and great for all of the other candidates, which was put an extreme version of misogyny on display, say that it wasn't acceptable, and then, you know, move on to chatting about whether it's okay for women to die before they get abortions. And then Scott Walker can tweet that he stands with Megyn Kelly as if he doesn't want to reduce women to their anatomy, which is like most of his platform. So you saw her kind of segue from the Trump challenge to asking these pointed questions about abortion as this way in which she was what exactly? Like, was that her really pushing? I mean, I one thing I noticed generally, Jamel, I wonder what you think about this. I felt like generally the Fox moderators were hitting the weaknesses of every candidate or at least the points that might really call into their electability into question. So I thought that was what she was doing with Walker. But do you see like another kind of element of her questions there? Well, I don't know, because the questions sort of some of the questions are these pointed sort of attacks, not attacks, but pointed examinations of each candidate um, was vulnerable position, but some of them were kind of just softballs. Um, I, I think Michael Tomaski at the Daily Beast um, noted that every question Marco Rubio got was practically a slow pitch. And Jeb Bush got some pretty easy ones too. Jeb Bush just isn't a very good politician and so had a hard time uh, dealing with his softballs. With Kelly's questions about abortion and um, uh, with misogyny, I, I kind of, I'm not... I'm not entirely sure how to read it because it's not as if this is an audience that when Scott Walker says, when Marco Rubio says, I'm against abortion without exceptions, that they're going to boo, right? These are people who are going to clap their hands and they'll be really excited. This is what Republicans, or at least the kinds of conservative Republicans who watch debates and are engaged in the process, this is what they want to hear. So one way to read it is definitely that Kelly is trying to emphasize some sort of weakness. But another way to read it is just she's letting them show Republican voters um, that they're on the, all on the same side. Amanda, did you think that Trump was actually talking about whether Megyn Kelly was having her period during the debate when he used this weird blood coming out of her wherever phrase? I think so. You do? Yeah, although I've never described anyone as having blood coming out of their eyes when they're speaking to me. Uh, so I think, you know, his rhetoric is, is sort of on a different level. But it's certainly in keeping with anything that he's said before about women or, in fact, men. He's just like an incredibly insulting person. He loves insulting people. Right. He's a bore and he's way too interested in women's anatomy. I have to say, though, I believed him when he said he just meant like, oh, her eyes, her nose, her face, just because I think part of it, it just seemed so gross to me to move, <laughs> if, uh, move around her body that way. And also, if you watch more of the clip, he also starts talking about the idea that Chris Wallace had blood coming out of his eyes. So I 
felt like that maybe neutralized the term. But, I mean, the amazing thing about Donald Trump is that because he is such a bore, everyone assumed that he was making this, uh, you know, comment about her having her period. And that seemed believable um, about a presidential candidate. You know, I, I figured that he was talking about her period precisely because he is a bore and kind of a bad person. Um, <laughs> what was a little annoying to me about this entire exchange between Donald Trump and, and Fox and, and especially Eric Erickson at Red State was that Eric Erickson in particular has no real problem with terrible misogyny. I mean, if you just... Such a good point. I'm so glad you said that. <laughs> if you just Google... I Listeners, Google Eric Erickson and like women and you'll have thousands upon thousands of hits of Eric Erickson saying genuinely terrible things about women. And the difference, I think, with Kelly and sort of the women that Erickson normally insults, and I should say that during the, the debate, Donald Trump said something about Rosie O'Donnell that was a really terrible insult. And on Twitter, Erickson was like, yeah, this is great. This is an awesome thing to say about someone I dislike. And so I don't think Erickson actually has a problem with saying mean things about women. I think yeah, Erickson it seemed has totally a, opportunist. Right. right? I, think, I think Erickson has a problem with saying mean things about people he likes and people who have some relationship to him. But if Megyn Kelly were a MSNBC anchor and thus, I think, in his eyes, an unwoman, I don't think he'd care. Yeah, I totally agree. I mean, I think we saw this uh, with Sarah Palin, you know, in spades, where uh, Republicans learn to use accusations of sexism as just another tool in the toolbox. And, you know, it's so interesting how they have absorbed uh, what, you know, I think Donald Trump sort of correctly called political correctness. And I think it's, you know, in a way, it's a, a way of distracting from subtler forms of sexism that, you know, Eric Erickson or or anyone else demonstrates. And yet we have Kelly as this forceful presence. I mean, surely this whole episode is good for her star power in the larger world, even if it doesn't help her in the right wing universe. One of the things I was reading was that the number of um, insults hurled at her on social media just at this moment in the debate was just, you know, rose exponentially. All kinds of people were using misogynist curse words about her. And apparently she's gotten a lot of hate mail, um, which makes me feel like Roger Ailes should have stood behind her more clearly and really denounced Trump as opposed to making nice with him. I do think, though, that on some level it matters to have this strong woman on the right taking heat like this, even though, I mean, I don't want to go too far toward Megyn Kelly because she has done all kinds of things in the past that have, you know, horrified me or made me think like, oh, come on, she's really no feminist. You you didn't think her exposés of the new Black Panthers were important and vital? (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) And her attack on Aisha, one of our colleagues, for writing about, you know, daring to question the, you know, whiteness of Santa Claus was also just like... Santa Claus is white, my friends. Yeah, exactly. So I'm not I don't want to put myself out there as some like, you know, lover of Megyn Kelly. However, I do wonder if for somebody watching Fox, even if it's like the daughters or the um, sisters of, you know, conservative men, but maybe for the men themselves, that it has to have some kind of significance to have her out there and to have her not backing down. 
So I actually called my grandfather this morning because he is the only person who I know is a consistent viewer of Fox News. When Shark Tank isn't on, he will always watch Shark Tank instead of Fox. Uh, but Good I asked priorities. Him, I know. <laughs> I asked him how he felt about her and um, how he felt about her tiff with Donald Trump. And, you know, he said that he found Donald Trump's comments embarrassing, but also that he likes Donald Trump because he says what he's thinking. And uh, often what he's thinking is, like, really messed up and weird. And he said another thing about Megyn Kelly. You know, I think he likes her show as much as he likes any other Fox show. But he also said, she's a good-looking dame. <laughs> Those so were maybe exact in the words. end it's her, like, beauty and her blonde hair that are impressing the Fox audience more than her intellectual acumen. That would be depressing. I don't know. I mean, my grandfather is in his mid-80s, like many Fox viewers are. And I think I see her much differently than he does. But I agree with you that I see her as something different. I agree with Willa Paskin that I think she's very smart and really capable and good at her job. I don't really see her as a feminist hero, but you're right that she is a woman, and that is, like, unfortunately kind of a big deal. Right, right. Well, right. Maybe we'll just um, leave it at that she had, inadvertently or not, a feminist moment this week. The Gab Fest this week is sponsored by Volvo. It's time to experience the wonder of summer. Leave early, get close, wander more, stargaze, do it all. Have a month's payment on Volvo and spend the rest of your summer doing the things that matter to you. Plus, get up to five years full coverage, including wear and tear. The Wonder of Summer event from Volvo. Go to volvoscars.com slash us or test drive a Volvo at your local dealer. For our second topic, we will be joined by Will Arimas, who writes about technology for Slate. Hey, Will. Hey, Emily. Thank you so much for coming on the show all the way from the Bay Area, and um, we apologize for having driven your baby out of the house. We heard that we did that. <laughs> the baby the baby is out of the house, but believe me, uh, once in a while with a four-and-a-half-month-old, it's a relief. Okay. Actually, right. You're probably glad. It's, it's um, your relatives who are suffering. Or not. Okay. We brought you on the show because Google announced that it was turning itself into a new company called Alphabet this week. Google CEO Larry Page said that the idea was to make the company cleaner and more accountable. So Alphabet is now the publicly traded entity. Google is a wholly owned subsidiary and kind of the biggest piece of Alphabet. And Google is going to hold on to its core search and advertising businesses, as well as its map division and YouTube and Android. But the bunch of projects that are outside of Google and are more of the moonshots, like the self-driving car and the longevity project, which is called Calico, and even the idea of balloon-powered internet access, all of those things are going to be spun off. They're still in Alphabet, but they're outside of Google proper now. So, Will, you wrote this week that Alphabet could be seen as Larry Page's answer to Warren Buffett and Berkshire Hathaway, Buffett's um, holding company. So how good is this analogy? Like, do we now think of Larry Page as a master investor or is he doing something else with this reorg? No, it's actually a pretty bad analogy, and I'll be the first to admit that. <laughs> the reason Berkshire Hathaway keeps coming up is because Alphabet will be a holdings company, a conglomerate. And 
in the United States, in the corporate world, we're not that familiar with conglomerates anymore. We used to be. They were, you know, everything decades ago was amalgamated industries. Uh, but in the 80s, they fell out of favor. They, everybody thought that your business had to be focused on, on one key thing. And so we don't have that many anymore. And Berkshire Hathaway is probably the most famous one that's still around. And so that, that is one reason why everybody reached for that analogy, including me. Although I, I will say I did qualify that, even in my initial piece. Berkshire Hathaway is fundamentally different from Alpha bet though in that Berkshire Hathaway is all about finding value and, and the subsidiaries are each supposed to bring their own value, uh, financial value, shareholder value uh, to the umbrella company. Alphabet is not going to be like that. It's going to be in some ways it's more like a venture capital company. It's going to be a bunch of bets, a bunch of risky bets. Those are the things that Google calls moonshots. And they're hoping that a few of them will pay off big and cover the losses. And meanwhile, the monstrous profit engine that is Google proper will be subsidizing it all. So what I can't tell about this is, does this make the moonshots more vulnerable because now they're like maybe standing on, you know, pots standing on their own legs or whatever that uh, metaphor is? Or does it help them because they get away from Google proper in some way that makes their value clearer or gives them budget lines that are safer? Because it seems to me like if you think one or two of these moonshots is going to pay off, that's Google's bet on actually fulfilling the promise that Silicon Valley makes all the time of designing some big new invention that might actually change the world, make the world a better place. Um, usually I cringe when I hear that phrase applied to Silicon Valley because they say it all the time and don't often fulfill it. But I wonder whether you think that this could actually, you know, help promote something like the self-driving car or Calico, which is somehow going to help us all live longer. This is the crucial question. You, you've, you've hit it on the head. The question is, so this is clearly about moonshots one way or another. Larry Page, uh, who was CEO of Google, I think of this almost as, as like Google's midlife crisis. You know, it was, it's, it's 16 years old. Tech company years probably aren't quite as short as dog years, but they're shorter than human years. I'd say, let's say Google's 48 in tech company years. It's having its midlife crisis. Larry and Sergey are like, man, you know, every day today it's about mobile advertising and how can we maximize profit and cut costs. And that wasn't what we got into it for back when we were at Burning Man in 1998. And, and maybe they're old enough to have real midlife crises. That, are they in their could, 40s? That could very well be true. And so what do they do? They, they quit their jobs. They, they form a new company. Technically, of course. I mean, you know, the other way to look at this is they're just renaming what they've already got and nothing else changes. But I think they see it as they are redefining what they're about. Alphabet is fundamentally a moonshot factory. It will have Google inside it, but they will no longer be responsible for the tedious work of, of maximizing Google's profit. Now their job is to find these, these crazy endeavors and to make those things work while Google chugs along under the leadership of their, their capable deputy. The, the big question is, does this actually help them in that? Clearly, they think this will help them pursue those moonshots. I think investors might be thinking just the opposite. You know, Google's stock went up on this announcement. I suspect in some cases it was because invest, investors thought, oh, now, finally, we can see how much money they're really blowing on all these stupid experiments like internet balloons, and we can pressure them to stop doing that. Yeah, right, exactly. So Farhad Manju, who was a colleague of ours at Slade and is now a colleague of mine at The Times, his piece about this suggested that this shift could offer other tech firms a template for 
their next phase of evolution. And he was kind of asking the question, okay, does this mean that tech companies are going to be doing a lot more in many different aspects of our lives and of the world? Um, And is that a good thing or a bad thing? I kind of wondered, though, if like this is sort of Google-specific, because there aren't that many companies, or are there? Maybe I'm wrong. But it seems to me like Google's diversity of moonshot is kind of special unto Google. Yeah, I think it's it's some of each. I mean, I think there are a few companies in Silicon Valley that might see this as a path. And for them, this is sort of the latest step in a trend that's been building where a big, really valuable company like Google or Facebook will uh, start to, to take on other concerns and have them run somewhat independently. When Facebook acquired Instagram, everybody thought, oh, Instagram's going to become a part of Facebook. Well, no, Instagram is still Instagram. It's under the Facebook umbrella, but it's, it's run separately. And Facebook's doing much the same with Oculus, the virtual reality company that it acquired. So Facebook is probably the best analog for Google and, and the company that's most likely to head in a similar direction. I do think that in general, Silicon Valley executives see very little uh, boundary in terms of what they can achieve in the world. I think you know, they would all like to uh, say that their goal is to change the world in as many ways as possible. And you'll, you will see, I think, as long as the money continues to flow in the online advertising industry, you'll see it subsidize these, these crazy ideas like you know, Facebook is doing internet.org. It's, it's mission to bring the internet to all the rural parts of the world that don't have it yet. I mean, that's, that has very little to do with the social network itself. It's just, it's, you know, it's an ambitious vanity project by the founders and it's being subsidized by this just massive flow of cash that's coming in from these these advertising businesses. I just had one thought when I was reading the memo, which was that they they said that part of the reason that they wanted to do this was to improve transparency. And whenever I read anyone from any company saying that, I know that that can't possibly be true, but it seems like it might actually be true in this case and will, you know, you you argue, you know, possibly to Google's detriment, or I'm sorry, Alphabet's detriment. But do you think that's true? Do you think this will make Google as an organization more transparent? I think they want to become selectively more transparent. My understanding is that they will not, at least at first, they won't break out the accounting for every individual division within Alphabet. I'm guessing the ones that don't make money are the ones that are, that are less likely to get broken out when they do their earnings reports. What it will do is it'll allow them to, to break out the accounting for Google proper. And, and again, as I think Emily pointed out, that, that's Google's search business, it's YouTube, it's Android, uh, it's Maps. It'll allow them to break that out and show just how well Google proper is still doing, how much money it's really making. And I think Larry Page's idea is that if, they, if investors then see how little Google's really wasting on this other stuff compared to the amount that, sorry, how little Alphabet is wasting on these other projects compared to the, the massive amount that Google is still making, then they'll give Alphabet more leeway to continue to pursue these projects. But again, I think that could just as easily work against them. Will, we're going to let you go. Thank you so much for coming on the show. We really appreciate it. It was an honor. Thanks, guys. Before we turn to our third topic, we have a message from the GabFest's second sponsor today. It is ZipRecruiter.com. ZipRecruiter is all about making your company as good as it can be in terms of hiring. When you post your job in one place, it can often be difficult to find enough quality candidates. And when you're short-staffed, there's no time to deal with lots of different job sites. Until now, what ZipRecruiter.com does is post to 100 or more job sites with a single click. 
Just post once, and within 24 hours, you can watch your candidates roll into ZipRecruiter's easy-to-use interface. Plus, you can be instantly matched to candidates from over 4 million resumes. ZipRecruiter has been used by over 400,000 businesses, and you can try it right now for free. Try ZipRecruiter and get your perfect candidate before they go to somebody else. Go to ZipRecruiter.com slash GabFest. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash GabFest. For our third topic, we are going to talk about Larry Lessig. He is a Harvard Law professor who's been very successful in that capacity, but has lately become a political activist. He started a PAC, or at least was involved with a PAC called May Day, that in the last election cycle tried to back a whole bunch of congressional candidates who were supposed to do more for improving our election system. None of those, um, or at least May Day was not seen as instrumental in electing any of those people. But Lessig is back, and now he is offering up the possibility of what he's calling a referendum presidential campaign. The idea is he's going to be a candidate among the Democrats, but that his sole agenda as president would be to pass something he calls the Citizens Equality Act. And that is a package of reforms that would guarantee the freedom to vote with automatic registration, get rid of partisan gerrymandering, and fund campaigns with a mix of small-dollar donations and public funding. So essentially, it would get rid of Citizens United and also get rid of Shelby County, the Supreme Court ruling from a couple of years ago that gutted the Voting Rights Act. Jamel, what do you think? Is Larry Lessig right, first of all, that the threshold, the most important, the thing we have to do first problem of American politics is this particular mix of reform in the way we elect our representatives? I don't think that it is. I mean, in general, I'm I'm just skeptical of single sort of single problem explanations of anything. So there are a lot of problems with American politics, and they all interact with each other in like complex and complicated ways. So to think that the way we fund elections is the central thing, I don't know if that's the case. I don't know if that holds up the scrutiny. How we fund elections compounds the problems that are kind of inherent in a system that isn't actually accumulating majorities of people, but is is trying to wrangle up majorities of interest to pursue particular policies. And so even you can imagine a world where there's public financing and everything and there's no private money in elections, which is probably not going to happen ever, but just positive. Let's just imagine that utopia for a moment. Imagine it. That doesn't change the fact that there are still very wealthy people and there are still large corporations and there are still influential interests that will find other ways to exert their influence on the political system. I mean, so I asked you this question, like, is this the most important issue? And you're saying no. Are you also veering into saying that essentially, like, it doesn't matter how we fund our elections? Or am I overreading you? I don't think it doesn't matter. I think it matters less than we think. I think it matters in the sense that the inherent distortions and the kind of system we have are made worse by the fact that just to pull a corporation out of the air. Walmart isn't just a you know multi-billion dollar corporation with um, influence across the country, but it's also a multi-billion dollar corporation that can plunge unlimited limited amounts of money into the political system. But take away the money and you still are left with the fact that this is a very powerful interest uh, that has the ability 
to exert its influence in other ways that don't necessarily require spending a bunch of money. What's funny about Lessig doing this as a presidential election is that of all the elections that we have where money is a problem, I don't think presidential elections are really the one we should be worried about because they're so expensive anyway that, you know, some billionaire giving $100 million to a party or to a super PAC to spend on behalf of a party is kind of a marginal contribution to the whole thing. I'd be more concerned I, if, if, if Lessig's plan was, I want to emphasize the problem of secret donors putting a ton of money into state legislative elections, which are relatively inexpensive and you can do a lot of damage with not that much money. I think that'd be much more valuable. And there I would say this is an important thing to do. But in well, terms in all of- fairness to him, he's running for president as a way of focusing on all of these issues, including the one you were just saying about state elections, right? Like his idea is, OK, I'm going to be president for one day or six months or however long it takes to get this one thing done. And then I'm out of there. But the thing he wants to get done would fundamentally change how we elect local people as well as federal legislators, I think, right? Maybe. So let's assume that it will and that he can do this and that this is this is the thing that you can actually get elected president doing. Which is like a big heavy lift, right? Because right. he's still going to have Congress. Like, know, why is not Congress going to go for this? The problem is not even like getting him into the White House. It's like, how are you going to pass this act? And, and what, what would compel... Lessig says that he'll have a mandate to do this and that by the sort of, you know, irrepressible power of the mandate, Congress would act to do it. But that that's nonsense. <laughs> Congress you don't think all those Republicans who will still get elected and have no interest in the Citizens Equality Act are just going to fall into line? Yes, I agree with you. I think there's a total chicken egg problem here. I think I'm someone who is really sympathetic to his argument in general, and I find him so annoying and insulting to my intelligence that I think (laughs) it's possibly, you know, counterproductive for him to do this because what he's doing is running a kind of stunt campaign, but he's doing it. He has such specific goals for himself that would not actually apply to any of the other candidates when he inevitably loses. And he has no, I mean, he has like a really specific idea of what sort of act he would like to pass, but ostensibly no understanding of how that actually happens, that I just feel like it's annoying. It annoys me. And I think, you know, his statement that 1% of Americans have watched his TED Talks is one of the most obnoxious things that has come and out so of this election so And so it will be no so trouble far. for him to get to the 1% threshold to make it into the Democratic primary right. debates. That was right. the context for that. Yeah, that was that was uh, not the most deft comment I've ever heard a would-be populist make. I am going to defend Lessig to this degree. I kind of want him to be on the stage when the Democrats debate during the primary season because I do think these issues are more important than Democrats or Republicans usually acknowledge. And I would like to have him up there making the argument. Do either of you guys agree with that or are you so irritated by him that you would not even wish him onto the stage? What do you think, Jamal? I mean, sure. I'm I'm happy to have him on the stage, happy to have these issues discussed. I don't see really any problem with that. I kind of – all my problems with this are so are, – are almost bigger than Lessig and, and more in the sense of what this stunt, I think, represents, which is a really bad habit of thinking, I think, on the left to see the president as sort of the central mover and the central figure in changing American political institutions. The way this actually works – is that the president is a representative of an entire party, um, which, as an aside, 
being president is more than just passing or get, trying to get legislation passed. Being president is appointing people. It's nominating people. It's sort of running the federal bureaucracy. I think it's actually extremely irresponsible for Lessig to, to say, oh, the only thing I need to do as president is this one thing. Then I can like book. I think it's very silly and dangerous. And if nothing else, that's why I wouldn't support him. But that aside. He can be on the debate stage. He can be on the debate stage. And I wish I wish left leaning reformers would take more seriously the idea that the actual pressure point for changing American politics are not on the presidency. They're not even really in national politics. They're in the boring, frustrating world of local and regional uh, politics where you can move you can move state parties to a great degree and in doing so you create the leverage for moving future candidates on the national stage but that's such a good point go ahead amanda sorry you know i would love for this to be an issue in the debate i have a hard time understanding what his presence would be like on that stage you know if he's posed if the moderator poses a question that has anything to do with anything else is he going to say well i'll pass that to bernie sanders as i would in my one day in the white house it's just kind of silly, and I understand that, you know, that might be part of the point. But it's really hard for me to understand how that how he will perform in the debate and maintain his dignity and the dignity of the of the issue that he rightly I think thinks is so important. One of the things I've been thinking about is the premise of his of this campaign of his platform generally is that we can't get anything done. We can't fix any problems in America until we get at the root of this fundamental flaw with how our democracy is structured, essentially a flaw with the Constitution, with, you know, the processes we've set up as they've developed because of gerrymandering, because of the lack of campaign finance reform, et cetera. Is that in itself kind of a destructive idea that, you know, until we address this big looming structural problem, we can't make other kinds of improvements? There's a sort of despondency there that feels to me like a bad message for the left to be sending. What do you think about that, Amanda? I don't think it's that bad because I really don't think that many people are going to care about what he has to say. Yeah, right. I guess I'm making him seem more relevant. I guess my, Jamal, to go back to the points you were making about how important all of this is, I mean, I think I might give more weight to the influence of actual campaign donations in influencing policy than you do. I sort of divide issues into two different rough categories for these purposes. There's some things like gun control or abortion that people have really strong views about. And it probably doesn't matter a whole lot. You know, you only move the needle a teeny bit when you give tons of money for those kinds of issues. But then there's all the hidden issues like, you know, which particular breaks in the tax codes certain corporations are getting or how does, you know, financial reform and Dodd-Frank actually play out in regulations, that kind of stuff. Or I feel like money, as it currently is constituted, the, the paths we have for it into the system matter a great deal. And to me, that's why Lessig's point about small donations and having campaigns that are financed through public funding and through um, little contributions actually really does seem like it's significant. Jamal, what do you think about that? I, I agree with you that I think that those hidden pathways for money, those those sort of levers for influence are really what, what's worrisome and what's the problem. But I just I don't think that that's a function of campaign finance reform. 
So things in the tax code, if you are, you know, some uh, oil company that's trying to get more tax credit, some of that will be donating money to politicians that would be favorable to you. Though I would say, kind of in reference to my previous point, that the politicians you'd be donating to are most likely the politicians that have some vested interest in the maintenance of oil wealth. And so it'd be people who would already be inclined to support you, um, so you're, maybe you're you're doubling down on a commitment, but it's not it's not really meaningfully. You're not getting some environmentalist up in Vermont to join you. You're not even getting some apathetic representative from Virginia to join you. You'd be getting someone from Louisiana or from Texas or from Oklahoma. But we could still take them. I mean, hey, on either side, it seems like any way we can make races more up in the air. And um, and this goes to his point about gerrymandering, I think, right? Like the more we can have representatives who are persuadable, maybe that would have some kind of impact or you don't think so? I, I don't because for the smaller – Issues like tax policy or whatever, where there's lots of undue influence and powerful interest, I think it's more. I think it's more more function of how Congress is organized. I mean, lobbyists have a place in part because congressional staffs just don't have enough people or time or money to research everything, and so there's there's actually a practical necessity. Necessity, and so if I wanted to reduce the influence of lobbyists, I would recreate the independent congressional research organizations. I would beef up staffs. I would beef up budgets. I would do everything I could to make lobbyists less necessary to anyone's business. On the well, that could be your single-issue <laughs> presidential run. I'm sure that's your next plan. Or it could be your next column, maybe, so, and with maybe. slightly more humility. On the, um, <laughs> on the campaign side, what's funny is that the number one thing that tells you whether a race is competitive is whether both candidates have about the same amount of money. And so what you can you can look at sort of the not competitiveness of races as a problem of money in politics in the sense that one side is getting all these donations and it's overwhelming opponents. Or you can look at it as in there's just not enough money in races. And like if we just gave every candidate who ran a minimum amount of money to run, um, you would have more competitive contests. Because at a certain point, you do reach that diminishing return for additional dollars. So you get on the ballot as a nominee in you know a, a somewhat competitive state and you get a half million dollars in your bank. Um, that's probably enough to run a very competitive race. Isn't that an argument for public financing? It is. Um, it's also an argument for uh, unlimited donations with, uh, you know, disclosures. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. I, I'm just skeptical. I'm like broadly skeptical of looking at there's too much money in politics as a singular thing. There's a lot of ways in which money money influences politics. And, and then Lessig knows this, um, which is also a bit frustrating. Right, right. One imagines that he has thought through all of these things and decided on his messaging very carefully, but that doesn't mean it doesn't seem oversimplified or grandiose. All right, let's stop there. Um, We're going to do cocktail chatter in a minute. But first, I have an announcement for all Slate fans out there. Slate is throwing a party to celebrate our first 10,000 Slate Plus members. You guys are helping support Slate, and we want to say thank you with a members-only fiesta. So it's going to be on August 19th in New York and also in Washington, two locations, a celebratory cocktail, the chance to chat with your fellow members, the Slate Plus team, and also some of your favorite favorite Slaysters will be um, appearing too. So for tickets, you can go to slate.com slash plus slash home. That's slate.com slash plus slash home. Amanda or Jamal, are you guys going to these gatherings? I will be at the one in New York. All right. And I will be at the one in D.C. 
Okay, that is the best advertisement possible for these events. Cocktail chatter. Amanda, what will you be talking about this weekend? Can we not start with me? We cannot start with you. <laughs> great, great, thank you. Um, Jamel, what will you be talking about with um, your friends or whoever you run across um, over drinks this weekend? I'm not sure I'll be talking about anything. Instead, You're I'll, not going to speak the I'm not going to speak. I'll be mute. Um, That's going to be really rotten for everyone <laughs> who would stand to enjoy your conversation. Instead, I'm going to be intrusively taking photos with um, a, a film SLR. Um, and it's like, I guess my cocktail chatter is me waxing uh, romantically about the, the, wonder, the wonderful kind of process of shooting film and encouraging people that if you have an old camera around, you should pick up a roll of film. They still sell them, believe it or not. And, and take it out for a spin. I've been doing photography in some way, shape, or form uh, for almost 10 years now, but I've never shot film. Um, I've always had digital cameras. And it's been really wonderful to use film in part because it just changes your orientation to photography. It makes you more deliberate. It makes you think much more about light and shadow and composition. Um, and it's a whole lot of fun and a great conversation starter. Um, for the past couple of weeks that I've been shooting with film exclusively, I've talked to a ton of people who are like, at first they're like, oh, what kind of camera is that? And they, they look for the screen. And then I'm like, no, there's no screen. It's just a film camera. And they're like, I cannot believe those things still exist. Jamel, thank you. That was great. Um, Amanda, what is your chatter plan for drinks this weekend? So I have been slowly cherishing the Netflix show um, Wet Hot American Summer, First Day of Camp. And I don't want to finish it because I love it so much, but I sort of want to finish it in time that I can justify talking to people about it and making my friends talk to me about it. Uh, I have two episodes left, um, so I'm confident that I will get there at that point. It is such a delight. Crucial question that I am so glad to be asking you. Will my 15-year-old and 12-year-old sons enjoy this, and is it okay for them to watch it? Um, They're like super big 30 Rock and Parks and Rec fans. So they've been exposed to many inappropriate things. Sorry. Yeah. So there's like um, there's some light sex stuff. There's also, you know, probably some humor that they won't get. But one of my favorite parts of the show is that there is a lot of time spent on campers. So there are very cute and also incredibly hilariously obnoxious, probably 12-year-olds in the show that maybe your 12-year-old will like watching. I bet your 15-year-old will think it's funnier. All right. I'm going to test it out on them. That is great to know. My chatter this week is about the Long Forum podcast. It's been around for three years. I love listening to it. If any of our listeners out there are not already fans, I super recommend it. And a really great one to start with, um, if you've never tried it before, is the 100th episode. They did clips from some of their favorite previous guests, and David Grant is on there, and John Allen, and Ta-Nehisi Coates, um, and Friedman, some other people. It's just really fun listening. I was listening to it again um, this morning and feeling really glad for its existence out there. So if you're interested in long-form narrative, and how writers think about it and do it, I yeah, you should check it out. And you can also listen to the Amanda Hess episode, which I believe is quite an early episode, actually. <laughs> it is kind of early. You can also listen to the Emily Bazelon episode. That is so true. All right. We will stop congratulating each other. 
All right. Thank you guys so much. You'll find links to some of the things we talked about today at our show page, slate.com slash gabfest. You can email us if you still use email. I do. At gabfest at slate.com or comment at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash gabfest. Please subscribe to the podcast in iTunes. That helps other people discover the show. You can find it by searching for us in the iTunes store. Our producer is Mike Bolo. Our intern is Tarek Barrett. The managing producer of Slate Podcasts is Joel Meyer. And the executive producer is Andy Bowers. Our Twitter feed is at Slate Gabfest. For Jamel Bowie and Amanda Hess, I'm Emily Bazelon. Thanks so much for listening. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C. on Tuesday, May the 14th. My colleague, Mark Joseph Stern, and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it. And we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets.